Welcome, listeners, to another fantastic episode of the Religious Studies Project. I'm Chris Carter. He's David Robertson. She's Brianne Fallon. And he's and David McConaughey. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> we did it. Almost. Um, yes, listeners, um, we're joined by Brianne and Dave, who are taking the reins here at the RSP so soon. Soon you may never be hearing again from David and myself. I find that hard to believe. In fact, you'll be hearing from me in just a few minutes. Um, this is an interview I recorded just very recently at the DVRV conference in Hanover with Tisa Wenger on the subject of how religious freedom constructs religion. Um, we'll be back after the interview to chat more with uh, Brianne and Dave about who they are, what they're doing, and. Uh, what might happen with the RSP, but for now, take it away, David. I'm joined today by Tisa Wenger. We're here in, in Hanover at the uh, DFARV conference. And however, we're going to be not talking about the German context. We're going to be um, discussing how religious freedom makes religion. Tisa is, um, well, she teaches in the Divinity School at Yale um, uh, including religious studies and American studies, and is the author of the recent book, Religious Freedom, The Contested History of an American Ideal. Welcome to the Religious Studies Project, first and foremost. Oh, thank you so much. It's good to be with you. Let's, um, let's put the book in a little bit of context before we get into a couple of case studies. Um, tell us how you started working on it. How did your early... Uh, studies lead you to this subject? Yeah, um, well, I'll try to keep it relatively brief instead of giving a full intellectual autobiography. <laughs> but um, the so my first book, which is based on my dissertation, was called We Have a Religion, the 1920s Pueblo Indian Dance Controversy and American Religious Freedom. I started that book not by thinking about religious freedom, but by thinking about um, race, American colonialism, um, and the category of religion. And uh, when I wanted to make an intervention into the kind of religious studies conversation about uh, to what extent is the category of religion a colonial imposition in various contexts, and I wanted to talk about that in relation to Native Americans, and for a variety of reasons, ended up looking at the American Southwest and the Pueblo Indians in New Mexico and arguing, argued in that book that, um, that Pueblo Indians only began really to contextualize their traditions as religion in the 1920s in order to make an argument, uh, for religious freedom. And so that's how I got to religious freedom, kind of like, um, through the back door, so to speak. And when I finished that book, I wanted to ask, uh, put a similar set of questions in much broad, on a much broader historical stage. So I was asking, who's invoking the idea of religious freedom and what kinds of cultural and political work, um, does it do? And in particular, in, um, kind of imperial contexts, colonial contexts, um, and in relation to racial formation in the United States. Mm -hmm. So um, the 
set of arguments that you didn't hear me talk about today has have to do with um with race and the way race is shaped in America in kind of co-constituted with religion and so i have i'm arguing in various other examples about um how race and religion are are co-constituted but um i was interested in initially in this question of how religious freedom shapes um or or produces religion um when different sort of social and cultural formations come to be conceptualized as religion and um how the category of religion is formed in that process and so um i'm part of what i'm arguing in the book is that that religious freedom disputes do important political and cultural work in that way in shaping what is religion yeah right and that's for me is a very interesting um aspect of your work the we're very familiar with the kind of human rights uh approach to this you know this issue of yeah how do we represent religions in the law and how do we deal with religious freedom and these kind of ideas um all of which of course sort of assume this thing which needs to be represented um whereas your argument is more subtle so if i'm understanding it's essentially that the category of religion is almost created in these legal um negotiations about how we represent and um recognize religions in the law especially in a sort of colonial context is is that is that what have i got yeah, that correct yeah yeah that that's exactly right and uh, but i would say that um in most cases it's not being created out of nothing right mm-hmm. yeah of course <laughs> um yeah. in in most religious freedom controversies that we see of course um the category of religion already was present um and and being used by people mm-hmm. but it is recreated and reshaped all the time and in some cases um i think particularly in colonial contexts you can see where local people colonized people start to use it for themselves for the first time mm-hmm. or lar- move pretty much for the first time right um because particularly when we're talking about US imperialism religious freedom is such an important concept for um for Americans generally but yeah. for colonial officials in particular mm-hmm. who saw themselves as bringing freedom to the people they colonized right, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. and in some cases bringing religious freedom was particularly important to them right and so i'm interested in how then religious freedom served as a tool for um kind of colonial administration mm. um but i'm also interested then in how colonized people take that principle and use it to kind of speak back to empire so to speak right which is one of the most difficult aspects of post-colonial study of religion i think for people to get their heads round um is that it's a process of 
there, there's a two-way process. It's not simply the baddies making the goodies behave in a certain way, but the category is um, reshaped, reconstituted, and sustained in that dialogue where um, it is imposed in certain legal contexts, but then it's also used by... Um, the people being colonized yes as an act of legitimization yeah yeah exactly so in the native american case and i can point to lots of uh, specific examples you know in my work on the pueblo indians and the 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 piece of my book that you heard me present on today about ojibwe indians in minnesota mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. um in in both cases you see us um government officials with the bureau of indian affairs delegitimizing indigenous traditions by insisting by by categorizing them as um superstitious heathenish pagan right um and indigenous people who really in their own languages and ways of structuring their they had their own ways of structuring their societies right mm -hmm. but those ways of structuring their societies didn't really include any um anything equivalent or you know to the category of religion as um as as americans understood it at the time yeah um but they start to conceive of those traditions as religion in order mm -hmm. to argue back against mm -hmm. the categorization of 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 themselves as heathen savage pagan etc right yeah. so this is why I titled my first book, We Have a Religion. This was a quote from a Pueblo Indian petition mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> to the superintendent of Indian affairs saying, we also have a religion, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. and, and you can't ban it because U.S. First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, right? Yeah. I, the, 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 uh, the clearest example that I'm aware of, uh, it's quite a well-known case, uh, um, you know, is the kind of Indi the way that Indian independence um, and Hinduism are kind of co-evil. So Hinduism is a, a an administrative category, essentially, by the British Empire, yeah. which then becomes one of the central motifs in the national identity um, of India and leading in directly into kind of the Indian independence movement and, yeah. and in, you know, one nation Indian, uh, um, political power today. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the sort of construction of Hinduism as a world religion yes. is, is, is happening in conjunction with that colonial history, both by Indians, Indian intellectuals, mm -hmm. and by British, um, absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> um, yeah. for 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 um, somewhat different ends, mm -hmm. but it serves both of their interests to construct Hinduism as a world religion. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. But and, and Native um, Indigenous traditions, as, um, in for Native Americans and elsewhere around the world, never got, never. Um, Got cat got conceptualized, moved to that level of right. world religion, which is yes. a whole different thing, as we know from uh, Tomoko Masuzawa's work and others. Absolutely. Let's um, let's dig into one of those examples. Then the the, the Pueblo Indians example is really fascinating. So perhaps you could take the the listeners through um, some of the details of that. Sure. So um, 
the, 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 the Pueblo Indians are really a group of, uh, culturally related people, in, peoples in New Mexico, also related to the Hopi in Arizona, um, related be in, because they, well, they're really, uh, now I'm going to ramble, but they're really f- f- four separate language groups mm-hmm. that lived to get close by each other for several centuries, and so came to share a lot of um, cu- cultural um, characteristics. But they were co- share um, were colonized by Spain early on um, as part of the kind of northern ex- you know mm-hmm, expansion mm-hmm. of New Spain up into what is now the southwestern United States and that was hugely fu- influential in shaping who the Pueblo Indians were by the time um, y- the United States arrived in the region after the Spanish-American War in 1848 and um, most of the Pueblo c- Communities, although not all of them, uh, became Catholic under Spanish rule, mm-hmm. and in uh, and were were pretty bilingual in Spanish and in Indigenous Tewa and um, and Tewa languages, um, and they in in the kind of Spanish. Um, uses of the of of of, of religion were uh conceived of catholicism as their religion um so it's not that they weren't familiar with the category of religion mm-hmm. um but were under spanish law <laughs> let's just say uh and in the kind of mexico in the mexican new spain and then independent mexico there was no legal advantage um, because there was no religious freedom guarantee to yeah. conceptualizing indigenous practices as religion. So they had uh, um, come to a kind of accommodation with the Franciscan priests who were mostly the clergy in the in the local churches. And the Pueblos came to be named for Catholic saints mm-hmm. um, and had uh, – feast days um, for the patron saint of each Pueblo, which uh, where they would have practice um, traditional Pueblo dances, as well as have a Catholic mass and a procession through the town. Um, but they had kind of come to an accommodation with the Catholic priests, with the Franciscan priests, whereby they would, um, uh, they, they talked about Pueblo Kiva ceremonies and uh, Pueblo ways as costumbre, custom. Yeah. Right? And so that really didn't change under American rule until the 1920s when there's a new commissioner of Indian Affairs, Charles Burke, who puts out this kind of um, dance policy um, order to enforce older regulations against Indian dances and those, the, the ones from the 1880s that I was actually referring to in my talk today, he, Charles Burke in the 1920s tries to reinforce those uh, Maybe regulations. Maybe just, just uh, in a sentence or two, tell us what they are because the listener won't have. Uh... Right. So there was an, um, and these are 
not laws passed by Congress, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're more bureaucratic regulations within the 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 Bureau of Indian Affairs is nested under the Department of the Interior, and the Commissioner of Indian Affairs is in charge of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and he had immense sort of executive power. Uh, to regulate. And so this uh, Court of Indian Offenses was created by the Commissioner of Indian Affairs as a way to try to, I'm sorry, I'm not being very brief here, but... <laughs> it doesn't, no, no, this is, this it's is relevant. good. This is good. Um, as a way to, again, a kind of tutelary regime, right? A way right. To, to instruct Indians, and I'm this, this is done in a very patronizing way, mm-hmm, so I'm kind mm-hmm. of echoing the patronizing language that was okay. used to instruct Indians in the way in the in, in civilization and in um, the law. So they would have they would the, the the agents would appoint a, a kind of more quote unquote progressive Indian yes. to be the judge of the Court of Indian Affairs. But part of what the Court of there was also there were kind of regulations or there were a list of quote Indian offenses, and nowhere in this. Uh, in the documents extant from the time or in the, in the regulations that were written up by the commissioner was this referred to as religion. Um, but it later came to be called the religious crime, crimes code. (laughs) And, uh, but, you know, but they, but the, but the Indian offenses that were listed in this code, um, were heathenish rites, you know, mm-hmm. the arts of the conjurer, the medicine man, yes, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. right? And so, uh, native people could be, could be and were fined and imprisoned for practicing the arts of the conjurer or, um, participating in certain kinds of dances that mm-hmm. were specified to be banned. Mm-hmm. Um, but, that had not, f- uh, you know, for various reasons, the U.S. kind of c- control over Pueblo Indians was not nearly so strong in that period in the late 19th century, and it hadn't really been enforced against the Pueblo Indians ever. And uh, I don't need to take the time to go into the reasons for that, but um, but in the 1920s, actually sparked in part by a um, um, expose of Pueblo ceremonies in which those ceremonies were depicted as sexually lascivious Mm -hmm. and immoral Mm -hmm. um, by missionaries and and, and, um, missionary-minded government agents who were Really, I think it's safe to say completely misinterpreting and misreading and, uh, those, those it's ceremonies. It's a common way of representing, um, any, uh, barbarous religion anyway, isn't it? It's correct, a, it's a correct, language. correct, mm-hmm. correct. Um, so, um, because, so, so Charles Burke's new, um, kind of regulations on dances that were really just, trying to reinforce some of the earlier regulations from the 1880s mm-hmm. 
were sparked by a controversy over Pueblo Indian dances. And so they were very much uh, at the focus of the controversy that ensued. In the meantime, there were uh, um, kind of a group of Boasian anthropologists and um, sort of modernist artists and writers who had settled in New Mexico, in Taos and Santa Fe, and who were starting to really romanticize the Pueblos as ideal primitives, quote mm-hmm. unquote, right? And so some of those people um, also leapt to the defense of the Pueblos. And, um, but Pueblo leaders themselves, um, resisted the, the, the government's oppression by saying, um, you know, you can't do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, our traditions are religion. And they, but they, they, their recategorizing their traditions as religion was aided by the anthropologists and artists who were also starting to, to do the same thing, right? In mm-hmm. a kind of celebration of quote primitive religion, um, way. So, so that's, that's what happened. And then it, then it was, there, there were, it was a pretty big public controversy. I mean, um, with articles in lots of national, um, magazines and newspapers and Mm -hmm. such about, um, about the Pueblos. And one of the people who was centrally involved was, a uh, John Collier, who at the time had just become the, um, head of a new reform association called the American Indian Defense Association. And he was a, um, becoming, one of the biggest gadflies against BIA assimilationist policies. Mm-hmm. And then later under um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, with the New Deal, Collier was appointed as Commissioner of Indian Affairs, which was a huge overturn. Mm-hmm. Um, and he reversed some of these on, he reversed um, some of these policies outlawing Native American dances. Mm-hmm. And he did so on religious freedom grounds um that reform had its own limitations of course and most bia agents even after that point in the mid 1930s continued to work closely with christian missionaries and even when they formally recognized the right of native americans to religious freedom nonetheless still conceptualized religion with such a christian model mm-hmm. that um they um they often ruled indigenous practices outside of what counted as religion right so what was considered religion was always being uh negotiated and contested mm-hmm. on different indian reservations between um native people and uh, government uh, agents and so was there also the kind of the the opposite side of that does the legislation and the control then shape the way that the indians are practicing do they begin to think differently about their practices and um and maybe even emphasize different bits more and and focus on things yes, absolutely. as a result yes absolutely so when i finished the book on the pueblos then i um 
the first, this was the first piece that I did for my new big, you know, sort of broad scope religious freedom book. My, the first sort of transitional step I took was to say, well, I've done all of this in-depth work on the pueblos in New Mexico. Now I wonder how, uh, how this happened or did us, can I tell similar kinds of stories about other Native Americans elsewhere in the United States, right? Um, and when did Native people st- start to use religious freedom arguments? And w- how did that shift things for them? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't get to that part of, I did make that kind of argument in relation to the Pueblos as well and talk about how that actually, how reconceptualizing their traditions as religion created new inter- conflicts within Pueblo communities. Um, but I want to talk now about the, the, the newer research that appeared in the second book in the religious freedom book that resulted from, you know, me asking, well, how, what did this look like more broadly? And initially I was actually theorizing, thinking, well, probably, um, because there was such a, concerted government attempt at suppressing these these traditions and nobody was thinking of them as religion that probably religious freedom wasn't a pertinent category until the 20th century but i found that not to be the case i found that actually the more i looked the more i found native americans um from the beginning of the 19th century really some in some cases using religious Ooh. freedom talk um and I would say, broadly speaking, there at least two different types of ways that that was applied. So one, I would, in, in relation to the kind of colonial, stages of colonial history, perhaps, um, in early stages of colonial contact, before native nations are conquered. Um, when you have Christian missionaries coming, right, yeah. mm-hmm. where you have, but where the native nations are not under U.S. control, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. Um, you sometimes, you, you often see native people saying something like, um, we're not interested in your religion. We have our own religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that directly becomes language about religious freedom. And sometimes it becomes directly language about religious freedom. That is, that is also about protecting indigenous sovereignty mm-hmm. um, in a kind of collective way. Our people have our own ways and you, you know, you can't, take our land you can't take our you know <laughs> mm-hmm. and we and 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 religious freedom was part of that but it's not a religious freedom that is appealing to the US constitution because they're not under the yeah. US constitution yeah. right they don't see themselves as being governed by the United States yeah and there's maybe less of a separate it's it's maybe not to do with you know uh, freedom of religion and this, the role of the secular. It, yeah. They're, they're more thinking in the terms of religion as customs and, yeah. and that kind of 
Yeah, they're I using do. religion talk, but in a way where it's uh, where it's very integrated. Yeah. Um, the way yeah. that they're yeah. So and then, but then after um, Native Americans be, are conquered, essentially, mm-hmm. right? And that happens at different times in different parts of the country and for different um, Native nations. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the late 19th century, by the 1880s, um, really um, overwhelmingly Native Americans have been conquered and have been restricted to reservations. And there are now new policies that are being implemented. And the um, the Court of Indian Offenses that I was describing earlier is part of that period of of a kind of newly heightened effort at, at administrative uh, control. And uh, that's when, you know, immediately right in that period, you start to see Native Americans on reservations resisting the suppression of um, indigenous practices and um, what sometimes in, uh, Native people refer to as their doings, or mm-hmm. right? Um ceremonies, dances, all kinds of practices that, um, you know, medicine, healing practices, start to refer to some of them as religion, specifically in order to make religious freedom arguments. Um, And that started to happen in the 1880s. It accelerated um, with... Uh, the, the peyote movement and the suppression mm-hmm. of the peyote movement, mm-hmm. and I kind of trace that history in in the book. Um, but you see, so it, and actually, the peyote um, movement is a really interesting case in in regards to what the question you were asking about how that shifts indigenous traditions, because um, um. I mean, I don't, I don't think the government suppression and the law is the only reason that peyotists and, you know, people in that tradition started to think, talk about it as in, in, in the language of religion. Mm-hmm, they start, mm-hmm. there were other reasons as well, but this was certainly one of them. Yep. But what is very clear is that the, that peyote leaders, um, and practitioners, um structurally the movement shifts towards a more what we might call a kind of protestant modern certainly a christian model for what counts as religion right. in order to make religious freedom arguments mm-hmm. um in the courts and in congressional hearings and before state legislature slaters and that happened um in 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 various places but um but you know, there's a, the incorporation of the Native American Church, right? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That happened, which uh, there was an anthropologist, James Mooney, who helped with that process, and and so, um, and the Native American Church, you know, again, peyote um, ceremonies were for various reasons borrowing from. Christianity and some of the peyote movements um, began to see themselves as Christian, but the fact that being Christian helped with 
a religious freedom argument meant that those groups had a boost, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's a kind of incomplete Christianization of the peyote movement and the Native American church that isn't entirely caused by the need to um, to resist government suppression and make religious freedom arguments, but is certainly encouraged and accelerated by it. Right. Um, and so, you know, peyote is called the sacrament again and again. You see Indians trying to argue, you know, against legislation suppression that is in a also um in the climate of the prohibitionist period right when 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 there's a huge campaign to against drugs and alcohol mm -hmm. and particularly mm -hmm. alcohol right um mm -hmm. so there were crusaders who were employed by the bureau of indian affairs to stamp out the alcohol trade among Indians and the peyote dr became kind of classified as a, as a dangerous uh, drug right. yes, alongside yes. alcohol. And yeah. so the, um, so the Bureau of Indian Affairs talked about peyote and the peyote as a, um, a cloak for right. drug dealers, right? right? That they're just the way that cannabis became. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, they're pretending to be religious in order to kind of peddle drugs, yes. right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, in order to combat that kind of, um, you know, suppression and denigration, peyote leaders would um, would emphasize the kind of moral, positive moral effects of peyote practice and peyote worship and um and talk about the sacrament and talk about their their the church right and so that was very much a, a necessary strategy for them and i and, and i i don't see it again i don't see it only as a strategy but mm -hmm. it was certainly um accelerated by that um yeah yeah and we've um on the RSPU, we've talked a few times, we've been talking about it over the last uh, week here as well, um, that all of these categories, uh, you know, uh, religion, race, the secular, uh, human rights, they're all part of a, an interlocking system. So, you know, it's not, it's not just the one thing that affects the way that religion is uh, constructed, right. but it's part of a larger system in which those are the the building blocks we're working with. Right. Um, yeah, so you remind me in saying that, you know, the point I was making in the, in the talk I gave earlier today about how religious secular distinctions are um, even produced in some Native American societies mm -hmm. in this process, because what I found was, this was the part I didn't quite get to in my earlier answer, but... What I found was that in many Native communities, um, while religious freedom arguments appeared quite early and many Native leaders are making religious freedom arguments, they also it's sometimes kind of strategically, tactically, um, 
that wasn't the most effective way to convince mm -hmm. a particular official or that um, to allow them to hold dances. Mm -hmm. Of course, sometimes dances went on <laughs> mm -hmm. regardless of what yes. the official yes. said yes. out of, out of their view. But, um, but many native Americans um, on, you know, many reservations, you see dances being held on the 4th of July on um, mm -hmm. various kinds of, national holidays and Christian holidays, you know, Christmas, Thanksgiving, but especially the 4th of July. And, um, and Native people and returned veterans, especially after the First World War, saying, um, we fought for our freedom and we have the right to, uh, you know, mm -hmm. to celebrate our freedom. And plus, these are just social dances and white communities hold dances too to celebrate the 4th of July. And so why can't we? And, um, and they, in those cases, would very much downplay the um, any kind of sacred ceremonial. They didn't in, in conceptualize those traditions as religious for the purpose of these arguments. Mm -hmm. And so you see, a, I think, a kind of differentiation between certain. Uh, dance or ceremonial traditions that became defended and conceptualized as religion and came to take on the characteristics that are associated with religion, which is really modeled after Christianity in mm -hmm. the United States, mm -hmm. versus those um, kind of dance or ceremonial complexes that were defended in different ways mm -hmm. and so came to... Um, were, were not conceptualized as religion. And so there's a kind of um, religious secular distinction that happens um, where some dances are secularized, but at the same time, but, but, but the, but the point I want to make is even beyond that, that the very distinction between a religious right. dance and a secular dance is mm -hmm. emerging in that process. Mm -hmm. um, as a last question then, um, What, what do you think, uh, where, where are we then with the, um, religious, religious secular distinction in law today? Do you think this is something that we should be seeking to challenge? Um, or do you think that there is still some value in, uh, in a religious freedom law? Uh, that's a really, Big and hard question for mm -hmm. me. <laughs> I mean, I know it's something you're thinking through just now, so maybe it, it, it can be just initial. It, it is, and I mean, I am more I am more comfortable s trying to observe and map how it's happening, right? Seeing the kind of work that religious freedom is doing, and I think you know, in the contemporary. United States, uh, certainly religious freedom disputes help shape what people think of as, um, as, as, as religious and what they don't mm -hmm. think of, you know, mm -hmm. um, and why certain things again and again get sort of coded as, as, as a religious issue, as a religious freedom issue is, um, is complex and puzzling, but you know, it should uh, I? I'm I'm of 
two minds about the you continued utility of religious freedom and i have always um come down on the side that um as kind of muddled and complicated as its history is that it's a tool that has nonetheless been useful to lots of minority groups mm-hmm. and that um we can't just reinvent our world and our categories ex nihilo right it's like we're not we don't have that kind of power as scholars um so is it better to try to eliminate religious freedom law i mean i i i don't really think so i might change my mind about this yeah. you know yeah. uh be, i re- i think that um while seeing how historically constantly negotiated it is uh what gets included within the scope of religious freedom and how that how that uh shapes what religion even is in our society that um that we're better off um pushing for more inclusive but sometimes also more um um more limited views of religious freedom in the sense that um that i don't think religious freedom should kind of trump every other right yeah, yeah. uh right. every other value or principle of equality and justice that right. we have right. uh in the history i trace i think i can you you can see how that tendency has been a problem and has served, um, has been weaponized yeah. over and over again. And I think mm-hmm. it's still weaponized today. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we're better off trying to kind of, um, reformulate and reclaim religious freedom. Uh, and I, you know, I have a colleague and, um, friend, Michael McNally, who teaches at Carleton College and he has, a new book coming out on Native American religious freedom that is really grounded in contemporary ethnographic research with, um, well, he's worked with and learned from Native American activists and lawyers and organizations advocating for religious mm-hmm. freedom mm-hmm. now. And he, he says, you know, that they're very much, these contemporary native leaders are very much aware of the sort of limits and pitfalls of religious freedom, Mm -hmm. but they nevertheless find it to be a useful tool alongside others, even when it had, even though it has failed repeatedly in the courts for native Americans that, that contemporary activists would not want to, to be gone right, yeah. because they see yeah. it as a way that they can, um, because religious freedom does have such cultural power in the United States mm-hmm. that it can be a way to give a certain amount of moral authority to their claims. I mean, that's one of the kinds mm-hmm. of arguments that, that, that he makes. And I find that very convincing. And so I, I, I think that um, for scholars who 
see religion as a constructed category and all of that. I mean, yes, absolutely. But uh, who are we to say that activists shouldn't have that tool, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, been, it's been a really interesting conversation. There are a number of big questions that we're not going to get time for today. So um, maybe we can have you back one day in the future to go more into the racial stuff, for instance, which we didn't really get too much in. But um, for now, uh, Tisa Wenger, I want to say thank you for taking part in the Religious Studies Project. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And I hope to be back because, yes, there's so much more to talk about. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks so much for that, David. Um, it was great to hear the presentation at the conference on which that uh, interview was based. And um, I'm glad that you managed to you sort of wing the interview a little bit, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you, you were a bit of a winger. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to bring it wasn't merely an attempt to publicly embarrass me. Um, yeah, no, it was, uh, I, I enjoyed the paper. It was based on, and then we were lucky enough to have dinner with Tisa um that evening or was that i think that was the previous evening yeah that was the previous evening so i i knew her, her with and, wine yeah and then <laughs> um, got her to agree to an interview which you have just heard so yes um we're joined um in in three different time zones um this was not the best plan perhaps for diversifying the rsp editorial team but we have brianne in um Sydney and Dave, you're just outside of Boston, aren't you? I am. Wonderful. And so it's it's about just a, it's before seven a.m. for you, isn't it? That's okay. The house is nice and quiet. <laughs> so I guess um, just tell us a little bit about yourselves. Um, listeners will be familiar with uh, with both of you, um, I think, from previous podcast appearances. But yeah, um, what's going on? Dave, you go first. Uh, I am uh, living in uh, uh, Massachusetts. Uh, I teach at Salem State College on the coast. And right now uh, I'm working on a number of projects. All of them can be kind of grouped together, uh, thinking about what religious people have to say about secular things and what supposedly secular things have to say about religion. Fantastic. And Brianne? So um, I'm full-time at the Sydney Jewish Museum uh, lecturing on all things religion and violence, so the Holocaust, the Rwandan genocide, different religious aspects of those cases of mass violence, which um, it's not the easiest thing in the world, but it's something that I personally think is is very important. And um, I did things a little bit backwards because my, my PhD is due in, well, it's 90 days on the day of this recording, so it'll be less by the time it goes to air, so you can all feel sufficiently sorry for me working full-time and having my thesis due so soon. Uh, you've just decided to take on, uh, you know, a massive international podcasting enterprise at the same time as well. Yeah, you know, glutton for punishment. <laughs> so ambitious. Fantastic. I mean... So our hope is that um, over the coming weeks and months, as I, um, the, the RSP output is going to become so much less the, the David and Chris show and take on um, a much more Dave and Brianne flavour. 
Um, do you have any any thoughts personally, both of you, on how you're planning to shake things up, how you're going to wrest control away from us too? Well, I uh, really loved the idea of sort of expanding the RSP more into the sort of notion of school curricula and having podcasts that are more directed towards helping teachers in the classroom talk about all the things that we love to talk about um, and giving them the tools to talk about them in a in nuanced and critical way. So I would really love to see almost a, you know, almost a separate se- section of the website where we have those resources, some of which we've probably already created and just tapping into a whole new pool of 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 listeners but also you know getting young people you know passionate about religious studies and more people who can fight us for our jobs later absolutely that was so well said i think the the one thing i'd I'd add too is that i think this may be the 300th podcast today this this time that you just heard and uh I'd really like listeners to be able to take advantage of more of the resources that are already on the site with so many responses and so many podcasts already. I think we have a real opportunity uh, to present all the things that, that the team has created over the last uh, almost 10 years uh, and really share those as widely as we can. Yeah, absolutely. And having, um, having new editors on board uh, is going to help spread some of the the day-to-day or week-to-week work of getting the podcasts out and allow us uh, to collectively put our attention to these um, broader uh, initiatives which are, as you say, vitally important to the future of the project and, and consolidating what we've done so far. Um, we have probably wittered on enough there for this podcast. Um, um, we should have teed up, you know, guys, that we always say thanks for listening right at the end. Yeah. Um, so um, I think there's nothing left to do except um, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation charity number, SC047750. Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey, and finding editors Chris Cotter, that's me, and David Robertson, that's him. Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett-Fox with marketing managed by Benjamin Marcus. Our Opportunities Digest managed by Ella Buck, podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock, and social media managed by Ray Radford. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash project RS. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes and other portals. Thanks for listening.